Hello and welcome to The Entrepreneurs on Monocle Radio, the show all about inspiring people, innovative companies and fresh ideas in global business. Today's programme features innovative businesses tackling some of the most important and urgent global challenges. We meet the founder of a Swedish non-profit supporting and investing in startups with the aim of radically improving the world. We want to put the spotlight on impact entrepreneurs. So companies, businesses, startups that are actually tackling a real societal issue. And we'll head to Switzerland to meet the founder of a clothing brand making upcycled garments from river plastic. Our production is so local and sustainable that uh, we emit less CO2 than the burning, than the incineration process would cause. So that's why we have a CO2 negative footprint, which is quite amazing, I think. This is The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. Nicholas Adelbert is the co-founder of Klarna, the buy-now, pay-later giant and Europe's highest-valued private fintech. After helping to build the company to a billion-dollar-plus valuation, Nicholas had something of a wake-up call about his contribution to society, his role in enabling people to purchase products they can't afford, and the endless pursuit of financial success without purpose. He quit Klarna in search of something more meaningful – and in 2016, he started the Norsken Foundation, a Swedish nonprofit dedicated to helping entrepreneurs make a positive impact. With award-winning hubs in Sweden, in Rwanda and in Spain, the foundation's building an ecosystem of businesses that seamlessly blend community impact with technological advancement. I caught up with Niklas to discuss the start of the Norsken Foundation and the role business needs to play in solving global challenges. He began by telling me about the start of the journey. I think going right back to the beginning of Norskin Foundation, perhaps we have to go all the way back to the founding of Klarna. And I was part of co-founding that all the way back to 2004. And Klarna is a buy now, pay later product. And uh, my ambition back then was to build a company the size of Price Runner, which was like the rising star in Sweden, $10 million valuation and 50 employees and so on. And we were very lucky with the timing of Klarna because we're connected to e-commerce and this was right when e-commerce started growing back in Sweden. So uh, we actually had a great growth trajectory thanks to that. And what happened in Sweden, which changed Swedish tech forever, I think, was uh, that Skype got sold to Microsoft and eBay. Suddenly overnight, you realized as a Swedish tech entrepreneur that there's no you don't only are able to build a, a nice tech company, but you can actually build a unicorn company because Skype got sold for $2 billion. And I think that changed a lot in Sweden. So Skype as a role model company of what is possible. And we were once again very lucky with Klarna. And seven years in, I was able to achieve this dream in life to have a $1 billion valuation. I went to Las Vegas to celebrate first class tickets, uh, champagne, very nice fancy hotel room with marble floor and uh, really spending uh, my time over there pretending to be a millionaire and uh, everything that comes with that but that actually ended up me rather breaking down in a in that same hotel room uh, with a feeling of profound emptiness and meaninglessness uh, because i i thought that more money would make me more happy and and i think that is true to some extent but then it's just a totally diminishing return curve 
So seeing all of those shopping bags, replacing my fake Rolex with a real one and drinking all of these fancy wine I couldn't pronounce that I couldn't taste any difference to, it was just like, yeah, emptiness and a myth to me. And uh, I think this experience of not chasing the next valuation or, or financial target for myself made me start to reflect on Klarna, the company I created, the company I've been celebrated for and receiving awards and first page magazines. And that was like, okay, I, I enable people to buy for products that they cannot afford today on a globe that we need four of to sustain the average consumption of a Swede. So the question really was that, am I perhaps part of, of the problem in the world and not part of the solution? And this started to eat me up uh, more and more. And uh, this eventually led me to quit the Klarna and instead start the Norskan Foundation. And what we want to do is that we want to put the spotlight on impact entrepreneurs. So companies, uh, businesses, startups that are actually tackling a real societal issue. For example, companies like Einride creating an electrical truck, uh, autonomous truck, or Northvolt creating the green batteries for the car industry. Uh, so companies that enable us to live within the planetary boundaries and not exceeding them. Uh, it's an incredible origin story, and you speak so elegantly about it, uh, Nicholas. And it's great, obviously, like Einride is a company we featured in Monocle as well, because these are the kinds of values that, that we care about. And I think it's interesting. Lots of business people talk, I think, sometimes in a rather throwaway way about sustainability. And it's used as a catch-all to mean so many things. But the first thing that any business or any person who wants to be sustainable in their behavior needs to be is, is to have a business that itself is robust because it can't do good work until it can survive and, and thrive. So in a way, you've got the perfect skill set, haven't you? You're aligning this interest in that intention, that impact, but with business savvy. Is that is that becoming an easier conversation, Nicholas, to have, even just in the short years since the founding of the foundation in, what, 2016? Is it, is it now, does it take less convincing when you're talking to people about why this has to be the way we go? No, for sure. So when we started in 2016, as you said, is that uh, we started to do investments into these companies. And uh, when we tried to raise external capital, investors told us or LPs, institutional investors said that, hey, you cannot combine impact and financial return. You have to choose. So the first fund we started was tiny one, 25 million euro, was the Norskan Foundation and three other unicorn founders. And we had a 1x return cap because we didn't want to compromise with the impact. We trusted all this feedback we got from the institutions. So a horrible financial product in that sense or a fund. But this turned out then when we saw the portfolio that we invested into that the companies that had the most impact were the ones with a proper business model so they can hire even more people and by that doing even more impact. And we saw that then they developed very well financially as well. And it was like so apparent looking at those fantastic startups as Ironride, Heart Aerospace, and the ones that you can combine impact and financial return if you connect it one-to-one -one with the turnover. And that's when we started, uh, did a proper VC fund, 125 million euro from external investors. And today, fast forward, we have about 750 million under management divided into five different fund strategies. So covering everything from the very early phases of an impact startup 
all the way into uh, Series B, I mean, later stage growth funding, and both for Europe and for, for Africa. So yes, it's a very big change in the conversations today. And I think what I read from, I think it was PitchBook, that said that the last two years in European Union, we've been seeing 280 climate venture capitalist funds being launched. So it's a very big difference from 2016, luckily. Well, yeah, and I wanted to ask you on a sort of a technical question. One of the big challenges, certainly if we go back to the middle of the last decade when you were kicking this foundation off, was the, the problem just with, with agreeing on metrics. And obviously we had frameworks and ambitions. Uh, the UN SDGs, of course, uh, seems to have a, a pretty wide buy-in. But there was a problem that it was difficult to quantify what we were trying to do, and it was hard to measure impact. How much better has that got, Nicholas? And are you proud of the work that you have done already in helping to agree on a more usable and sort of utilitarian set of tools by which to to chart progress? I think there's been a lot of development here, for sure. I mean, we probably have the most tightest and robust uh, impact framework out there. And it's been helped a lot lately by the new taxonomy of the European Union that have divided into different categories, where dark green category nine is the uh, the one that has the highest level of, of impact. But with that said, it is hard to measure. I mean, you could certainly find companies that are improving on um, CO2 emissions and having solutions for that. But meanwhile, is destroying the ecosystems in DRC Congo doing so. So how should you then evaluate such company? I think that you need to take in consideration all upstream, downstream, second, third order effects in evaluating if a specific company is net positive or not. Well, just on that point, and it was interesting, you mentioned this idea of, you know, dreaming up and, and successfully delivering a, a unicorn of your own with, with Klarna, of course. I like this alternative unicorn, the idea of making positive impact on a billion people's lives rather than chasing that elusive billion dollar number. How much more readily uh, do the people with whom you work, because collaboration is, of course, critical in driving the agenda that you've described, uh, Nicholas, how much more readily do people buy into that idea? And and do you think there are still problems with that, that misperception that doing good costs money? Because I know you've got the stats as well to show that that is absolutely not the case, but it's still a narrative that has traction for whatever reason. How, how difficult is that to overcome? No, I think it's changing fast in some geographies. If you look at Sweden, for example, we have 38 times as many impact startups as the world average. So it's like a big, big movement going on in Sweden. And I think that today as an entrepreneur, uh, if you start in, uh, another clever online casino or consumer credit company or uh, polarizing social media, I mean, that will to a larger extent today be scrutinized. So you cannot just create a specific valuation, not taking in any consideration if you're destroying the planet doing so. And the opposite, if you start a company today in Sweden where you actually have a very positive impact on climate change or ending poverty, you will be appreciated for that. So I think a lot goes back into like uh, what are the kind of role models we have in society? What do we look up to? And this is so given in sports that if you have a, a national soccer player that is performing really well, then you know that in 20 years you will have another generation of great soccer players. And this is hopefully how it is in society at large as well. So in Sweden, once again, people realize there's no contradiction. 
for solving some of the sustainability development goals. But I think you also have to pay, be honest about that. You cannot solve every problem out there with a business model. For some, you can certainly do it, but for some, you need the non-profit donation dollars as well. Well, yeah, I was going to ask you that. Should should we all be a little more relaxed about the great leadership in this space that comes from the private sector, uh, Nicholas? Because I guess there's one narrative that says, look, the problems we face collectively around the world are so profound. You need to have not just buy-in, but real uh, commitment from every every stakeholder, in particular nation states and supranational organisations. And yet so much of the uh, the stuff that really moves the needle, it just comes from capital. And lots of that, of course, comes from, from finance and from private individuals. Do we just need to be okay with that? Do, do we just need to be more relaxed about the fact that private capital really is going to be the thing that makes a difference here, that moves the needle, and, and not worry that maybe where we might have looked before to nation states, to governments or supranational organisations, it's fine if the leadership comes from private companies and we all just need to be more relaxed about it? It's a great question. I, I thought so in the beginning of starting Norskin. I mean, you have this Dumber-Kruger uh, graph, right? That in the, when you enter something in the beginning in which you don't know anything, you have a lot of confidence. But I think the more and more I go into this area of impact and impact entrepreneurship, obviously, the more complicated it becomes. And uh, I think we need to be aware that companies are a great vehicle of solving some problem. But you also have, I mean, in one way, you can think of companies as well as being obligated sociopaths. And, and a sociopath, as you know, is like a vehicle, a person that have a narrow-minded goal and cannot tell right from wrong consequently. So uh, in one way, you can see corporates being the same, right? They have a very narrow-minded goal, which is maximize its shareholder, shareholder dividends and not really caring on how to uh, do that as long as you are not doing anything illegal. So uh, in that kind of mindset, you you can see startups and corporates being very good in tackling climate change, but doing horrible stuff to biodiversity or other global challenges in doing so. I mean, you don't have to look far of seeing quite negative examples of startups, everything from how social media have been great in improving how we connect with friends but in doing so, being completely like hijacked by Moloch or the market, by advertisers to hijack your brain and make you dependent on the scrolling and, and uh, by that being displaying uh, content that irritates you or make you angry because that's more sticky and that's better for advertising. And then you have polarization, which is really negative for society. So I think that, no, we cannot relax and rely on businesses solving everything. Rather the opposite. I think it's a great vehicle, but it needs to be regulated and it needs to be complemented by all the different actors, such as nonprofits, such as governments and other areas. Yeah, that's really encouraging. And there are not many voices uh, calling for improved and enhanced regulatory frameworks, but I think it's such an important area of discussion. Nick, so I just wanted to drill down a little bit into the actual model and in particular to talk about your other fund, which looks at potential tech unicorns of the future coming out of Africa, Norskin 22. Give us a little bit of a, a 101 about how a project works, because I know 
You're looking principally at seed and Series A investments, aren't you? Um, Just give us a bit of of the mechanics of a particular project, how you typically go about getting that started, making those investments, and then helping to to, to shape the the trajectory. How does it actually work? It's interesting to know about the nuts and bolts. No, so if you look at what we've done in Africa so far, I'm I'm a big believer in ecosystems, that you need multiple different parts to make entrepreneurship flourish. What we've done in Africa as a start is that we created this, which I think is Africa's biggest hub for entrepreneurship in Rwanda, in Kigali. So it's a home for 1,800 entrepreneurs. And they're sitting next to each other, sharing ideas, sharing problems, challenges. And it is a center for accelerators and incubators, and hopefully as well, a lot of capital. And by having this under the same sort of roof, uh, we think that these companies have a higher probability of success and that we're able to catalyze startups as a great force Yeah, for some of the problems we're seeing today. So if you look at Africa once again in the macro, you have 1.4 billion people. That will be 4 billion people by the end of the century. I think 60% are below 25 years old. You have a smartphone penetration that is extremely fast growing in connectivity and you have the cost for data is going down a lot as well so i think looking at the challenges of this for in regards to climate change and footprint but as well the amazing business opportunity if we can provide capital and enable these entrepreneurs to flourish to a greater extent i mean i think it's fantastic but sadly one percent of uh, VC capital out there goes today to Africa. So that needs to be increased. More people, more organizations need to see the amazing business opportunity we have in Africa. So what we have done so far, except for this hub, is that we have created what you said, uh, Norskin 22, which is a $200 million uh, growth fund, as well as a seed fund that support these entrepreneurs. And that is showing to the world that you can make very good returns Meanwhile, contributing to economic growth for Africa. Let me just take you back, Nicholas, and that picture you described right at the top in that sort of Vegas suite, ostensibly, you know, you'd, you'd achieved the, the impossible. It was a complete success story, but you felt this profound ho- hollowness, this emptiness. Did you retain, though, and I, I think you probably did, given what came next, a sense of optimism about your personal capacity to address that weird void and fill it with something so much better? And are you still positive? Are you still optimistic about the direction of travel? Because some of the stats that you have mentioned, we know the SDG frameworks, how the ambitions are already, the can's getting kicked down the road, that staggeringly low number, you said 1% of of VC going to Africa. Are, Are you still positive that we can get this done, given what the challenge, how profound the challenge is? I mean, some days I am. I mean, I was down now in Rwanda just a couple of weeks ago, and I, I've never come across so much great talent uh, in my life, I think, uh, with so much hope and these people building fantastic companies. So I think people have started to wake up about this amazing business opportunity. And I think this will be a great model for enabling economic growth and by that elevating poverty. And not only that, I think it's also uh, what we're seeing now is that it's not only seeing them leapfrogging existing technologies, but we also see them really contributing to these global problems of having local 
and scalable international solutions for climate change. So that gives me a lot of hope, obviously. I think it also gives me a lot of hope to see this enormous traction of solutions coming into climate change and all the different cities, uh, corporations, nation pledging to go net zero by 2050, 2060, depending on what countries and corporations we're talking about. So a lot of great positive um, signs out there, I would say. If you look at the planetary boundaries framework, uh, we were overshooting two of them uh, in 2013, I think. Now 2023, the latest edition of the planetary boundaries framework, we are overshooting six of the different categories. So it's really going in the wrong direction. And we have this embedded growth obligation in society by central banks, by pension funds, by VC funds, by corporates. I mean, by everyone. Everyone want to have a nicer car. Everyone want to have a nicer living and a greater living for their kids, right? So that's part of this system that everything just needs to grow, grow, grow. And the question is like, how is that really compatible to the biosphere in the long term? I mean, you cannot play that game forever, obviously. So it's like a little bit like we saw during the pandemic that nation states went into subsidized unprofitable businesses. You could see it as like nature is subsidizing the entire market, but you cannot have that going on forever, right? That was Nicholas Udelbert, the co-founder of the Norskin Foundation. You can learn more about the foundation and its work by heading to norskin.org. You're listening to The Entrepreneurs. We head next to Switzerland, a famously clean country renowned for both its natural wonders and the citizens who respect those glorious landscapes by keeping things impeccably tidy. But despite the pristine environment, plastic waste can be found even in those crystal clear Swiss waterways. And that's how our next entrepreneur came up with the idea for his business. Peter Thomas Hornung is the founder and owner of Round Rivers, a clothing brand in the active sustainability space, making upcycled garments from salvaged local river plastic. Monocle's Tom Webb headed to Zurich to meet Peter and to hear about Round River's holistic approach to sustainability. Here's Peter. Originally, I'm an architect and I needed to have a little break, so I jumped into the river here. And honestly, by diving up and swimming, I found two or three pet bottles next to me. And I thought, this is not a problem, but this is a potential. So that's why I quit my job and founded the company Round Rivers. Where were you swimming? at the Limad here in the middle of Zurich. We should explain to our audience that it's one of the cleanest places to swim in the world. How did you have this big, bright idea somewhere so pristine? Yeah, of course, it's, it's a very, very clean environment in Switzerland, but it shows also that we have some dirt in Switzerland and that we need to take care of it. And I think, of course, there are not many plastic bottles in, within Switzerland floating around in the river but seeing what we can achieve in Switzerland shows maybe also the potential that we have if we would enter other markets like the Seine in Paris for example or in Bucharest there's a big river so I think the pollution there is way way higher and the potential is therefore also way way higher. So we talk about other markets how did you discover the gap in the market for what you're currently doing? 
by jumping into the river, um, I realized that nobody really takes care of river waste. So river waste ends up either in the ocean or it gets stuck at hydropower plant and second is in Europe the case. So mostly in Europe, mostly the river waste gets stuck at water barriers and usually they don't separate it into its raw materials. So everything gets taken out, gets burned and ends up in CO2. So you are here in Zurich. It's very, very cold. It's minus eight and everyone's wearing very, very big jackets. I think there's a staggering fact. How many bottles go into these huge, beautiful jackets that you are wearing right now? Yeah, it's a very lucky moment these days that we we have the cold this soon of the year already. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a question that many people ask me and it's surprisingly little the amount. So for my jacket, I only need 14 pet bottles. And for the long version with the hoodie, which you can find online, we, we use 18 bottles. So it's, it's quite a little amount and that's why it makes also sense in Switzerland to source plastic from the river. So I was in Davos this year and I must admit there were lots of companies turning plastic into everyday items from more bottles. But clothing is a new one for me, particularly swimwear. What kind of products are you making? I want to add some information because it's a very relevant point you you are mentioning. There are so many brands out there turning pet bottles into products, but in almost all cases it's downcycling. So you, the brands they nowadays use pet bottles that are in the recycling loop, and you should never break an existing recycling loop. So when you turn a pet bottle into a new pet bottle, it's recycling. When you turn a pet bottle that is correctly disposed into a fashion item, then this may sound green, but it's not ecological at all because you cannot bring it back into the circle again. So that's why there's not really a recycling in, in, in pet bottles. It's only a downcycling because we don't have the industry there to be able to recycle it back into the loop again. And what we do is we only do an upcycling. That means we, so we only make use of pet bottles that were found outside of the recycling loop. So you're telling me if I buy one of your products, I go beyond the realm of being carbon neutral? Um, honestly, yes, because that's a lucky coincidence, I have to say. Usually river waste in Switzerland or in Europe gets burned and ends up in CO2. And our production is so local and sustainable that uh, we emit less CO2 than the incineration process would cause. So that's why we have a CO2 negative footprint, which is quite amazing, I think. So you've got wonderful products on offer. You do have swimwear, you do have jackets. It's a perfect jumping on off point. Are you going to diversify? We are working on a product which is also unisex and that works in winter and in summer so it fits kind of the winter and the summer collection but I don't tell you what it is. <laughs> no, we'll have you back and you can talk about it in the future. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me. That was Peter Thomas Horning, the founder of Round Rivers in conversation with Monocle's Tom Webb. You can learn more about the brand and its work by heading to roundrivers.com. And that's all for this episode of The Entrepreneurs. We'll be back at the same time next week. Do look out in the meantime for Eureka. That's available every Friday. 
programme was produced by Laura Kramer, with mixing and editing by Tamsin Howard, and editing assistance from Sarah Nicholl. Listen again and find out more about the show at monocle.com. That's where you can subscribe to Monocle magazine, so you can read more about better businesses every month. You can also follow us and catch up with the archive via your preferred podcast platform. To contact the team, write to Laura. She's on lrk at monocle.com. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye, and thanks for listening. Listener.